Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Today, I'm very fortunate to be speaking to a PAX East panel alumna extraordinaire, Tatiana Vanovich. Hello. Hello. You have so many fascinating roles we're going to be talking about today. Editor at The Coalition, co-president of Jelly Tally and Associates, GameStop alumna, PAX East speaker. Oh my gosh, you are just everywhere all the time. I, you know, it's one of those things where once you get into an industry that you like, you try to kind of plug yourself in anywhere you kind of can. Susan Arden actually, you know, told me many years ago, like PAX is where you promote yourself. And that's where I got the idea to start doing a panel. And she said, you know, if there's going to be one place where you're going to like say, hey, this is me, this is who I am, making yourself accessible and known with people, speaking on a panel is the best way to do it. And I can definitely say that after doing the first panel, I have been more involved in the industry and approached more about stuff. I would definitely say that the best way to be asked to do public speaking is to do public speaking. <laughs> as much as I hate public speaking, it's, I almost feel like it's a duty, you know, as someone that suffers from anxiety, you know, sitting up there on stage, staring at people as they pile into that room. It's absolutely terrifying. But this year, for whatever reason, I, I was like, you know what, I'm telling people that they, they need to fight this fight. And I'm not going to, you know, pop a Xanax and be like, all right, everything's chill. Like, I'm going to be this Xanaxed out person trying to blind myself from the issue. So actually having that motivation and the support from everyone else and wanting to come to this panel, I was actually able to shove that aside and go, you know what? This is me. This is who I am, unmedicated and free. And it was liberating. It was definitely a completely different experience from the last two panels. So you used Xanax the last two times, but not this time? Uh, correct. It's and it's not like, you know, I take a bunch of Xanax and become a drone. You know, I I take a if I need to talk to someone, if I need to function, you know, if it's like a work thing or something and I need to have it, I take a, a small dosage. Um and I've basically controlled it to the point where I only use Xanax if it's like all right, in case of emergency break glass, where I would, you know, go through one bottle a month. It actually will last me six months now, which is a huge improvement. And anyone who has ever taken any anti-anxiety medication knows that that is, it's huge. But there was just something about this time and the issues that we were tackling where I just, I just told myself, I was like, I need to be stronger than I was the last two years. And I need to show these people that it is possible, no matter how anxious you are, no matter how much Xanax you take, that it is possible to tell yourself, it is going to be okay and get up there and fight the fight that, you know, you said that you would fight. Awesome. So I do want to talk a lot more about your history of panels at PAX and about uh, social anxiety, but let's back it up and find out just exactly who it is you are. All right. So there is, of course, the manifesto that we can send readers to online about how you became a gamer, and we'll be linking to that in the show notes, which can be found at episode number 46 at polygamer.net. But briefly, I noticed on your LinkedIn profile, it says, ever since you were a kid, you've been playing video games and writing stories side by side. What kind of stories are those? Are we talking about like uh, like fiction, fan fiction, news stories? It was a little bit of fiction and a little bit of fan fiction. I was obsessed with anime from, I was young, like, I think I was three when I started watching Sailor Moon because it debuted in America in about 93, 94 um, so I watched Sailor Moon as a kid and I kind of grew up with that and Power Rangers and, you know, Dragon Ball Z. 
And I just liked that fantasy that, you know, kind of anime gives you. So I would kind of write my own weird anime like stories and they wouldn't really be about anything. Like if I were to read them now, I'd be like, what, what, the, what was I thinking? Like, this isn't, I don't know what the fuck this is. Um, like, you know, I'd make my friends into different types of sailor scouts and all sorts of stuff. And in high school, I, no, oh, excuse me, wrote like a lot of weird zombie stories. Like they're all short stories. I never actually finished one. Um, I've had an idea for a book now for the last four years, but I have yet to really lock down what the book's going to be about. I have the premise. I have the characters. I have the beginning. I have the end, but like that whole middle and like the antagonist is still this whole gray area. So I've never actually finished a story per se, but I would start little random fanfics and stuff. Um, I did when I was really into Harry Potter. I can't remember the name of the site, but I did do um, like forum, like role playing on like a Harry Potter fanfic type site, which was always really fun. So I've always kind of, you know, lingered towards, I guess, more fan fiction stuff or stuff based off of other things that I liked, not necessarily, you know, anime or directly fan fiction. It would be like similar universes, but my own characters. So when did that become tied in with video games? Um, let's see, I've been a gamer since I think I got my Super Nintendo. I was, I got the, um, it was the Super Mario All-Stars pack, and I got that for Christmas from my godmother. So I started, you know, playing Mario when I was really young and played a lot of, like, the classics, and then I got into Final Fantasy, and then all that kind of, like, made me want to write more little fan fiction things. Um, I didn't really get into the reviews until 2010, um, a friend of mine from work was like, Hey, my friend Bernard owns this website. It's called digital brawler, which no longer exists. Unfortunately. Um, he was like, he needs writers. And, you know, I know you're a good writer, you know, why don't you, you know, help him out? And I became his managing editor and I went to CES and E3 with him and started reviewing games and reporting news. And that's kind of where it all started. So you went from being a fan of gaming to suddenly you're dropped into two of the biggest industry events that there are. Oh, absolutely. It was like going, you know, from the hot tub to the cold water in the pool. Like it was crazy. It it changed my world, really. Um, The first assignment that I had with that site was a solo CES, which was and it was in 2011. So video games are actually still like kind of a part of CES more than they are now. And so I got to travel Las Vegas by myself and like make all these appointments and meet all these cool people. Um, And that's actually where I met um, Jeffrey Wilson from 2DX was at a Capcom event. I went to my appointment like an hour early because it was like offsite somewhere and I ended up meeting Jeffrey and we played games together and we exchanged information and literally the second digital brawler folded, he called me up and he was like, can I offer you a position with me? And I was like, sure. And then once that folded, um, I started Ask Tatiana or actually, no, I'm sorry, correction, rewind. It was about to fold and we did a restructure and I offered to do Ask Tatiana as a separate entity. But then me and all my writers had a lot of like life stuff that happened. Same thing happened to 2DX. So 2DX, the whole company, which was Second Dimension Entertainment, folded. And then once that happened, um, Tony Polanco got me in with the coalition. So every one of these positions came from the previous one. In a sense, yes, because I met Tony through all the 2DX guys, because a lot of these people are from New York, so they all kind of knew each other. Um, And I met Tony through, you know, like Tim and Gabe and Isaac and all them at 2DX. And then 
we became really close. And then when they folded, I was like, hey, Tony. And he was like, yeah, come on, like, come with us. Like, this will be awesome. So that's kind of how that happened. And are these volunteer positions where you have some friends who are writing about video games and they want you to help them? If you mean, like, do I get paid for them? The answer is no. So I guess it is a volunteer kind of thing. 2DX, though, we, I, most of my travel was actually covered. We did cover, like, the travel costs and stuff for, like, all of our writers that went to these events. Um, the coalition, like, there, we're starting to like move towards like monetizing off the site and starting to like pay our staff and stuff. But I mean, it's technically volunteer work, yes. But I mean, I don't, I don't see it that way. Like I, to me, it's like actually kind of like a job. You know, like you have a job to review these games or to go to these events and provide the best content that you can for your readers and viewers if you're doing video stuff. I've attended some panels at PAX East where they talk to aspiring writers about how to get into the industry, and they encourage the writers to never write for free, even just to get their foot in the door, because if a writer's writing for free, then they don't have any stake in it, and they don't have any investment in doing their best work. But it sounds like your work ethic sort of transcends the financial aspect. I'm, to quote Adam Carolla, he once said a long time ago on his podcast, you have to do a bunch of work for free until someone notices you and starts paying you for it. It wasn't like he didn't say it like exactly like that. It was like, you got to do so much work for free and then you get paid for it or something. It was very, you know, snarky, but he's right. You know, if you, especially in this kind of industry, if you have a passion for it, if this is really what you want to do, the money isn't really going to be an issue. It's going to be more, where can I get a good outlet to represent me? Is this somewhere where I can confidently, you know, post my stuff and can I share it with the world? You know, so I mean, like I know IGN like has like their community program or whatever, but they have so many people in that where it almost, it basically turns into like a message board type thing. And those people that do the community posts and stuff similar to Buzzfeed, they tend to get hit. So like if they don't write this amazing, fantastic article that's worth front page coverage and, you know, gets a thousand views a second, they're not going to post it. It's going to be hidden somewhere. Whereas, you know, with the things that I've dealt with, with Digital Brawler, with 2DX, with the coalition, regardless of if I'm getting paid or not, regardless of if it's a topic that is relevant to, you know, the editor in chief's interests, it's still going to get posted. It's still going to get featured on the same page and it's still going to get the same treatment as everything else. So it all kind of depends on the person. If you really feel I've never been in this industry, I've never had a writing job, but God damn it, you got to pay me. I think maybe you're not looking at it right because you can't expect to be paid for something you've never done professionally. When it comes to something like writing, we all have, you know, blogs that we can make live journals and stuff. Sure. I mean, but it's not a professional outlet. It's not something that people go, oh, you know, I'm going to look at their work. I'm going to go to their live journal. You want to, you know, look at stuff that's been published on websites and that's been carried out the same way as every other article. So to me, the free stuff leads to, you know, potential paid positions. For me, you know, I haven't been writing as much because I've been focusing on school. Um, But I mean, you know, once I'm taking less and less classes and get close to graduating, I'll be writing a lot more and then potentially looking for, you know, something that can pay me. But for right now, it's something that I love to do. And the the payment to me is the exposure. Um, last year after my grandfather passed away, I wrote an article on how Life is Strange helped me get through that process. 
And it was the hardest article I've ever written, editorial, really. And it was one of the best pieces I wrote. And the coalition gave me a platform to share that with so many other people. And so many other people came to me and were like, you know, certain games help me with certain issues. And I'm glad that I'm not alone in feeling this way because you never know who you're going to reach out to. You never know what lives you're going to change with like an opinion piece that you write or, you know, an experience piece such as the one I just mentioned. So I, it, again, it's one of those things. If you feel like you got to get paid, sure, go ahead, find something that'll pay you. But I guarantee you, you're going to have not as an enjoyable and memorable journey as you would if you just looked more for a platform. I agree that people definitely need to have experience. They need to put their time in. And sometimes that comes from writing for free, whether it's for their own website or a friend's website or sometimes even a professional outlet, which is how I got started. But at some point, it seems worthwhile to ask that if somebody is making money off your writing, shouldn't you be as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's there's different platforms. So like for 2DX, it was all ad revenue for the most part. And so this, and we had donations and stuff as well. Um, so this ad revenue went into a bank account that the editor in chief managed and he used this to give back to us. So most of you know, a lot of it went to the server cause we had a really good server hosting and stuff. But then again, it went towards paying for our travel, you know, buying us a nice dinner, you know, every once in a while. Um, and then if he did have extra cash, he would hands down, he would give that to us. Jeffrey would pay us and he'd go, here you go. Here's extra cash. The coalition, I mean, it's a much higher volume website. So a lot of it is actually being saved and going towards, you know, these trips and stuff for the members like at E3 and whatnot. But the coalition actually did start a Patreon account. Um, and I can give, provide the link for you um, later. And, you know, we're trying to get people into that, too, so we can, you know, start producing more content. We can pay people and we can, you know, afford other things to help us, you know, expand and stuff. So, I mean, after a certain point, yes, but you also have to keep the business model in mind. Now, if, you know, the editor in chief is pulling in a $60,000 salary and you're not getting anything, yeah, you should probably look elsewhere or go, yo, like something's not right here where's my, you know, money kind of thing. So, I mean, it all, it all depends on the way the money's handled, I think. And luckily all three outlets that I've worked for have been really transparent and communicative about where that money goes and how it's being spent. So if you're not being talked to about those things and you've been working for them and writing for them for a while, yeah, you should probably ask some questions. Do you have a quota that you need to fulfill? We try, I mean, for active writers, um, I think it's two to three articles a week. Right now, because again, I am going to school full time um, and I've been dealing with medical things and, you know, the passing of my grandparents, which you cannot simply die in this country. It is physically impossible. There is years of paperwork afterwards and all this stuff to deal with. So because of that, um, you know, I just kind of drop in and out, you know, when I can. Um, But I do communicate like, hey, this is what I have planned. This is what I'm going to do. And they're very respectful of, you know, me kind of. Uh, what's the word, juggling all these different responsibilities and still making time for the site. Now, one of the websites you mentioned writing for was Ask Tatiana, correct? Yes. What was that all about? So I was in the shower because that's where all the good ideas come from. It's true. It really is. And I needed to come up with a new editorial for 2DX. Jeffrey was like, look, I need you to like come up with something. We need something. And I was like, all right. And I'm in the shower. And I was like, there. And that was when 
few years ago when Kotaku was like all about the GameStop, you know, jabbing like, oh, let's make fun of GameStop here. Let's give GameStop shit here. And I was like, I have something that they don't have. I have the years of GameStop experience under my belt. And now I did write this article before GameStop turned into what is now a completely different company from what it was. And I can go into that if you'd like. I have no issues with going uncensored about GameStop, what it was and what it's become. Um, But I called it, uh, asked Tatiana, you know, what's it really like working at GameStop? And I posted on Twitter, Facebook, all these different outlets saying, if anyone has ever had a question about being an employee for GameStop, now is the time to ask me. I had just left the company um, for the first time because I did leave twice technically. And I was like, you know what? I'm not under any NDA. I can say whatever I want. This is it. And the questions actually were like good questions, like educated questions um, that I was able to answer candidly and truthfully. And the article was actually really well done to where when I went back to GameStop, I was actually applauded for the article. But then after that second time I went back to GameStop, the company went through some serious changes um, and it was not pleasant at all whatsoever, which is ultimately why I left. But we turned that column, because I did it a couple other times for some other things, into its own site. And it was planned to be like a seat, like an SEO warrior, which is search engine optimization for those people who don't know. So when you type in, you know, pineapples into Google and random ass word, you know, whatever site pops up first, they have really good search engine optimization. So we would Google like these frequently asked questions and write these really intricate answers and articles to them. So like, you know, David would tackle like, what's the best router for my house? Or, you know, um, Elon Samuel wrote one about all the different Jewish holidays, you know, because that can get confusing for someone that isn't Jewish, you know, or is what gums are actually good for, you know, my teeth if I chew them every day and kind of like stuff like that. And um, my friend Andrew wrote a lot about working out and stuff because, you know, he did a lot of CrossFit stuff and he was really good at what he did. He taught other people how to do it. So we got to write about that and it was really fun while it lasted. It was really cool because we got to dive into a bunch of other stuff. Um, my friend Avion, who we worked together at 2DX, he did like the tech reviews for me and stuff. So it was kind of like an all around frequently asked questions. Like it was, like I said, it was fun while it lasted. Um, it's a shame that everyone kind of had their own different things going on and the whole company had to shut down, but that's pretty much what it was. Hmm. That is quite the diversity <laughs> of topics. It was it was fun. It was interesting. Certainly, when you were writing for that website, you were writing about GameStop at the Coalition. What would you say your beat is? Editorials, like, think. I know this is going to sound really cheesy, but like ABC Family changed their name to Freeform, which, if you like, look up the definition, is like, you know, topics that are kind of outside of the box that people don't talk about, kind of thing. Um, so I tried to like tackle different topics that people don't often talk about again like how life is strange kind of helped me through the grieving process or how it was culturally accurate to northern california a gamer's manifesto stuff like that so i like to do different like pieces that i find interesting um right now i'm actually working on i'll finally have the time to work on it um an editorial series about starting a company it's going to be called so you think you want to start a company and it's going to basically tell the story and the journey that i've gone through you know creating my company that i just you know technically officially created in april um so i'm hoping that that helps a lot of people because i think it's important especially in this industry to know 
the ins and outs of creating your own company in a business if you want to be in games specifically. Because a lot of these indie studios are where all the money's at and these people are, you know, starting their own companies, but then failing or not reading the fine print, getting screwed by bigger companies. So I'm hoping that this series actually helps people get motivated to go, hey, I had this good idea. Maybe I really should do something about it because maybe it might not be as easy as you think it sounds, but at least, you know, now you'll understand, you know, the process and the speed bumps that you might go through. All this writing that you have done and are doing sounds very different from the fan fiction you grew up writing. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> when are you going to get back to that? Oh, I I have like my book. It's on my desktop, like in its own folder. I'm only like four sh- four shorter chapters in. Eventually, I think I need to finish my degree first because I think in the back of my head, like until I get the stress of school out of the way, I'm never going to be able to fully get creative and really write it the way I want to write it. Okay, so based on everything you've told me and all your passions and all your professional pursuits, I'm going to make three guesses at what it is you're studying in school. Okay. Uh, Game design, creative writing, or journalism? No, no, and no. (laughs) So what are you studying then? This is going to sound so strange. Uh, Business administration with a marketing focus. Okay, I can see that. And uh, I'm a double major in art history. Now, the art history, you might be like, what the hell Yeah, is going pretty on? much. Yeah, that is, one of these things is not like the others. <laughs> so when I went to Cuesta, which is a community college in San Luis Obispo on the California coast, every, you know, before I continue, actually, my ADD just kicked in. Every community college has its own different, what they call, at least in California, I getsy requirements, which is basically all the general ed things you need to complete your associate's degree and then transfer to a four-year university. Different states do it differently. So like we have like a, if you want to transfer out of state, you have to do this extra stuff kind of part. But it's basically like, all right, your math, your English, your humanities, your history requirement, et cetera, et cetera. So at Cuesta, for one of the humanities requirements, it was one of the classes was Art 200, which is art appreciation. It was an art history class that basically went over everything from ancient art history to modern art but like in little bits so like you understood basically like the premise of you know every part of art history um the teacher i had scott brennan smith um who was one of the greatest teachers i've ever had would teach you about the culture of the people that created the art and then he would show you the art so it was just like this really rich experience and like seeing how these people functioned and the way that they thought and the way that they lived and then seeing the art they created. And I really liked that. Like I really liked the way he taught it because a lot of art history teachers are just like, all right, this is a slide. This is a slide. Leonardo da Vinci is the greatest of all time. This is a slide. And I, I just, I was really hoping that it wasn't that. And it wasn't, it was the complete opposite. So then for my second humanities requirement, I was able to take his, um, it was called non-Western art history. So it was like Islamic, Indian, Asian, Latin American, South American, and Polynesian art. And that just like, it was one of the coolest classes I ever took. And I really liked him. So then I ended up taking his ancient art history class. I was like, I really like things that he's teaching. Might as well take this other class. At the end of that semester, he approached me and he said, look, you're like three classes away from an art history degree. You don't have to take my advice, but it doesn't hurt to have a second degree under your belt just to have it. 
because in at least in California, if uh, a major is what's called impacted, which is where there's way too many students trying to get in at once and you're then put in a lottery system, what you can do is if you have another applicable degree that, and major that you can transfer in with, go in as that major and then as slots open up, kind of work your way back into that major. So after this semester, um, I'll be, I think, three lecture classes away from an associate's degree in art history. So it's one of those things where it's like, I've come this far. I like it. Might as well finish it. And um, maybe I'll still go to law school. I don't know. I'd like to eventually. Um, But most law schools actually like art history majors because they teach them how to be like really attentive to detail and these professional type like environments. Like they make you go to museums and dress up and like go to different panels about art and stuff. So they actually like the discipline that art history majors have and they get a little bit of like a leeway into law school, which I thought was kind of cool. But that's, that's why I'm starting art history because I, I got this far. Might as well finish what I started. But even a law degree seems very different from what you're doing now. It does. What I really ultimately want to do and what ultimately made me want to go back to school was I applied for a marketing position at PlayStation. And that is a very difficult company to get into. I almost got a position in their um, tech support department. But from an inside source, I was told that the answer to my question, uh, to the question that they asked, which was, where do you see yourself in five years? They didn't like, which I hate that question period. It's like, do you know where the hell you were five years ago? No, you didn't think that you would be here kind of thing. And I told them I wanted to get into PR and marketing. And they didn't like that. I didn't say I want to be in tech support for the rest of my life. And that kind of motivated me to go back to school. Because one of the things that Sony really wants to see is a degree in that field. I did meet and I believe she still is an attorney for PlayStation. Um, her name is Jan. I can't remember her last name, but she, I, we shared a taxi together at E3 one year, like on a whim. It was really funny, really random. Um, but she basically does all the legal stuff for PlayStation. And, you know, she works stuff out like, you know, the NDAs or, you know, like the whole, uh, what's her name? Ellen, what's, why can't I remember her name right now? Um, Juno girl, Ellen Page. When the whole like Ellen Page, Naughty Dog thing, you know, debacle happened, like she sat in on that or like, when there's trademark issues with products in game and all this other stuff and protecting the employees. So she still works in the gaming industry and gets to like kind of handle parts of the production process, but she's a lawyer at the same time. And I thought that was really fucking cool. And I was like, all right, if I can get a degree in marketing, get a job in PlayStation's marketing department, and then kind of take night classes at a law school and eventually work up to that, that would be like my dream career path. So you want to be a lawyer in the games industry? I think so, yes. Like in the tech game, it doesn't have to necessarily be games. I mean, ideally, but I think like an attorney for tech would be really cool in general, or even like a litigation attorney. I can argue over paperwork all day and win. It's people like litigation so boring. It's all paperwork. I'm like, I know. (laughs) (laughs) This is a very specific aspiration that I have not heard many people share. It, it is. And I've changed my major probably six times now. Pro tip, do your general education stuff first, not your major related stuff, because then you don't have to start all over again every time you change your major, which is the mistake that I made for seven years. <laughs> Something I wish I'd known. Oh, man. Yeah. So that's only actually part of the story of how you got to where you are, because something that you hinted at earlier was that you had a career at GameStop. I did. Yeah, that's something we actually have in common. I spent a couple years at GameStop, 
and I have some of my own war stories, but not I, as many as you, I imagine. Uh, it all depends on the location. I'm going to be real with you. It depends on where your store is and the demographic of like the types of people that you deal with. Because I've worked in locations where I've had little to no negative experiences and you know the customers were just great people who really loved us and felt like family and then i worked in locations where i dreaded going to work every day because i knew i was going to be treated like shit it's but no matter where you work everyone's got you know at least that handful of customers where you're never going to forget you know those experiences did it matter if you were in a mall or a strip mall one or the other i Thank God, never worked in a mall store, and I refused to. I was Why? offered a mall store a couple times because that, A, you don't see the fucking sunlight. Like, you are in a glass cube of shops and screaming children and parents who don't care where their children go. And it's just, you go outside and it was sunlight, and now it's dark. And I just, mall stores, just, I can't do it. I, I'm the kind of person when I go to the mall... I know exactly where the fuck I'm going. I know exactly what the fuck I'm getting. And that's it. And I'm out. Like, I to be in a mall 40 hours a week, I'd go on a rampage. Like, I would, it would drive me nuts. I was working at a mall, software, etc. on, oh, or not on, but the day after 9-11. Oh, my God. And people were upset with us because the new games that were supposed to come out that week had been delayed because all the airports were closed and sh- nothing was getting shipped. And we were getting flack for that. I I would have I would have fucking closed the store. I would have been like, get the fuck out. Goodbye. I mean, we did close the store on nine eleven <laughs> itself. But, well, that's good. But when we reopened the next day and people were like, where are our games? I'm like, nothing is coming in this week. Yeah, did you turn on your radio, the television? Did you try to watch television because literally all the channels said, yo, we're not doing anything right now because of nine eleven? No? Okay. Right. I mean, the only like, excuse I can think of is that more than any other time of the year, they needed their escape. Yeah, I can see that. I I can see that, but at the same time, to go in a retail location inside a mall the day after 9-11 and blame those things on a retail employee to me are just completely unwarranted. Like, everyone had Steam back then. There were still 100 million games that you could have downloaded and played. You could have replayed something. You know, it's one of those things where it's not GameStop employees' fault. Wait, Steam was around in 2001? Yeah. Wasn't it? How old is Steam? Hold on, how old is no, it? Wasn't it, it? It says initial release September twelfth, two thousand three. Really? Yeah. I feel like Steam was much older than that. Oh my god. There were probably other platforms. There, there had to be. I mean, we all had PC games. Everyone owned The Sims in two thousand one. <laughs> that Every, is true. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go look it up right now. The Sims. All right. When did The Sims initially come out? Sims initially came out in 2000. February 4th, 2000. Everyone was still hyped up on The Sims. Y'all could have gone home and played The Sims. Like, no, you would have been okay for a week. But, I mean, we still, we had so much shit. You didn't need the internet to play games. Nope, You didn't need the internet. You had your collection of games, and you could play them. Like, there was no updates. There was no bullshit. There was just, here's the games that you have. You can play them as many times as you want you can play them with people and here you go so i mean there was there was no excuse and most <laughs> of our customers were cool i'm calling out the exceptions rather than the rule oh absolutely so were you a manager i was um i got hired on as an assistant manager because i was a store manager for hollywood video prior to that oh wow um i well that's I another parallel that we have i used to work I at blockbuster i love that job i love that job the job was the best 
You, really? I I think I liked working at Blockbuster, but it was it was challenging at times. Blockbuster, from what I know, had more pressure on their employees for certain quotas and such than Hollywood Video did. Hmm. So like, and the people that I worked with, I always had like a really good staff and just like chill. It, like it was just a really chill environment. Like I had a lot of responsibility, but at the same time, like I had people that had my back, and we all just kind of. I don't know, work together and everything. I, I loved it. Like I always had a good time at Hollywood Video. Do I recall that Hollywood Video got a exclusive on renting the Sega Dreamcast? Uh, that was before my time, so I do not recall. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess you would have been, what, nine years old? Y- yeah, probably. I was, cause I was 17 when I started working for Hollywood Video. Oh. It was my senior year. Sorry, never mind. <laughs> oh, no, you're good. <laughs> I think Hollywood Video was renting the Dreamcast a month before it came out. Wow. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Anyway, so how long were you at GameStop? Um, if you don't count my gaps of like, you know, like leaving about seven years. Holy cow. That is mm-hmm. a long time. Yep. For a job that is, has a high turnover rate. It does. And like I was an assistant manager for the first five and a half years. And that last like year and a half, I was a store manager. I... Every single person that has worked for me, any member of any staff that I've had, and I've worked at several locations, is still a part of my family. Um, I think that when you work for a company like GameStop and you all underst- are on the same page and understand what's going on and how the company treats you, but you're still there because you kind of chose to be in a way, you bond it, I I don't know how to explain it. Like I'm at a loss for words. Um, when I finally got my own store and was able to build my staff, there were so many conversations that I had with these employees where I got to help them like accomplish something or overcome something, and it just it was so rewarding. Um, I had an employee who had severe like depression issues and anxiety issues, and because I understood what they were going through. I was able to motivate them and give them the resources that GameStop actually did offer for, does offer for free for employees, um, you know, to help overcome that and like work with them at work and like create these plans and go. And and when I managed and sorry, if it sounds like a tangent, like I didn't just train people for the job that they had at GameStop. My goal was to train them for life. To go, you learn these skills from me here, but you're going to use these skills for the rest of your life. And like to do that and to be able to do that and see that kind of play out. Um, I've suffered from depression for 13 years now. And when I left GameStop the second time, the last time really, um, the support that I had from that staff for the first time in my entire life, I could look at myself in the mirror and go, I'm not worthless. I'm worth something and I've helped people and now I can go on to the next thing and do this for a different, you know, audience, I guess you could say, you know, before it was GameStop employees. Now it's people that want to fight for equality in the gaming industry. And that it's as much as I would wish GameStop would burn to the ground at this point. Sorry, GameStop. It, it helps me and a lot of people. You know, we had the resources and we had each other. But now I, you couldn't pay me to go back. That's a very powerful experience it gave you, though. I had something similar 
11 years ago where I was just constantly doubting my self-worth and then I finally helped somebody else and for the first time I could say, now I'm worth something. Yep. It's and crazy. It just changes your life. It does. It, I cried that night. I got home. I took a shower. I cried in the shower. I got into bed and I was with a friend at the time. Not in the shower. I mean, in my bedroom, we were watching TV. <laughs> I just like couldn't stop crying. But it wasn't like a sad cry. It was like, I just kept looking at him and I was like, I, I am worth something. I did something good. Like I can close this GameStop chapter and feel okay about it. And it was the weight that just like, I, I didn't feel like that, that panicky anxiety sinking in my chest anymore. It just like, it was all gone. It was cra- It was one of the most amazing experiences I ever had. Um, I went on medical leave actually with GameStop. I got into some, some serious health issues, which I'm still kind of battling. Um, but for Christmas, cause I, my medical leave started like right before Christmas, they got me a sailor Jupiter figure, which is my favorite sailor scout. And they all, my whole staff got me a hello kitty fuzzy card that they all wrote for me in. And hello kitty is another one of my favorite things. And it's something I still keep on my desk to this day. Like reading that card, like when I need like a pick me up, like does the trick. Like, I, I know that if I feel worthless, I can read that card. And, like, the messages that, you know, my staff wrote for me in that card is is all I need. Yeah, I got a card from the person I helped, too. And it came completely out of the blue. I had not heard from him in over a year. And it just arrives in the mailbox one day and just reduces me to tears. It, oh, God. Aren't cards the best? <laughs> People need to write more. <laughs> yeah, it's a lost art. It is. But now you're moving to elsewhere in the game distribution channel and you are creating your own video games? You have your own video game company? No, it is a mobile development company. Um, I cannot talk about the actual app that is being developed yet. Um, But Jelly, Tolly, and Associates um, is a company that me and one of my best friends, Nick Lambert, and I came up with Um, three years ago. We went to this industry party and we got home. Um, We were drunk off our asses eating Taco Bell watching TV and you know, he was like, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if there was an app for this, you know, thing. And I was like, man, like it could do this, this and that. We looked at each other like, that'd be great. Ah! And you know, we laughed it off. And last semester when I first took my business class and my business teacher, by the way, if you ever go to college of San Mateo, take your business class with Pete. Cause he is the best. Um, our final term project for contemporary American business was you either made a pitch deck for an idea or you wrote a term paper on a company. And I looked at the guy and I was like, yo, like, I don't know you, but can I do my like term paper, my pitch deck on an app? And he was like, I've never really done that before. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So my teacher actually signed an NDA. He was like, don't tell me about this shit until you have an NDA. Got an NDA made for me and everything. Told him the idea. And he was like, why are you sitting on this? Like, what have you been doing? I was like, I don't know. Like Nick and I just thought it was a fun idea when we were drunk one night he's like no like you need to take this idea and run with it so the school and pete gave me the resources to practice pitching in front of investors and actually do a couple pitch competitions in which i won second place in the region one and then third place in the statewide one um, for the idea uh got the incorporation done And now I'm working on the wireframe with my UI designer, um, UI and UX designer. She's the same person. Um, And then I'm just looking for a mobile developer and hopefully I can get this project rolling and go on Shark Tank or, you know, show it off at CES. But once we're done with this 
big wide app that kind of hits like a general market. Um, what we want to do is make our motto like apps for everyone. So we want to hit like little niche markets like, you know, we're all geeks here. We like comic books and video games and stuff. Like how cool would it be if we had an app that like told you were the nearest, you know, Magic the Gathering, you know, competition was or like the nearest comic book shop or like a video game convention or like events in your area. So like stuff like that. You know, my mom works in the stainless industry and she was like, if I had an app that did, you know, these couple of things, that would be so helpful. So like, you know, making an app for a smaller industry, you know, that that's not necessarily super small, but small enough to not have like an app dedicated to them in their work and give them that and be like, hey, we've made this for you so you can have it and really utilize it and, you know, be able to listen to the feedback and stuff. So that's that's kind of what we're doing um, with that. And then in case anyone didn't know, Jelly is Nick's cat and Tolly is actually my cat. And the logo is the silhouette of our two cats. <laughs> I was going to ask who Jelly and Tolly were. Now yep. we know. Jelly's Nick's cat. Nick's three-legged cat. Who Man, she is an old cat, but she's still kicking. Uh, I think she's like 15 or 16 now. That cat is, she's still a kitten at heart. And then Tolly's my cat and she'll be eight in November. And I adopted her when she was about two and a half years old. And she is... She's my my baby. Aw, adorbs. She's so cute. Can we send listeners of this podcast to our website to see pictures of these cats? Yes, I will send you pictures of the cats. Yay, everybody loves Yay. I think I, I think Nick sent me a thousand pictures of Jelly just so I could have them for a logo prototype. So I'll <laughs> find them and I'll, I'll send them over. I've got plenty of pictures. So there are a lot of people developing a lot of apps for a lot of platforms. Not all of them have outside investors like you do. Do you recommend that route? it's i haven't really gotten investors yet so to speak i've just practiced talking in front of them and getting feedback um but i do have people who remain anonymous that basically said once you get everything done and you can provide you know the certificates of stock i will invest in your company definitely first of all if you have an idea trademark that shit just fucking trademark it um i recommend legal zoom i think the incorporation cost me a little less than 500 as did the trademark for the app that we're creating. So that way you have that idea and it is it is yours. It is trademarked. If someone tries to take your idea, guess what? See you in the courtroom. That's my money. You so, can trademark an idea? Yes, you can. The app, although it does not exist yet, has a name and it has a descriptor of what it's going to do. So if someone tries to do something that falls into that, I can sue them which sounds totally Californian of me, but <laughs> people in this day and age, you'll, you'll hear people go, oh, no, I don't need an NDA. Just tell me. I won't steal your idea. Don't trust anyone. Let's look at Microsoft. Let's look at Apple. You know, let's look at Facebook even. All three of these, you know, people who claim to be the face of these products and companies took their ideas from their best friends. And just think about, you know, if you've watched Pirates of Silicon Valley, you've watched it, right? Have you seen it? I've not seen the TV show. There was a movie called that in the 90s yeah. that I saw, but that's yeah, not that, what you're that talking movie. about. That, that, that is what I'm talking about. Oh, it, it is? Yes. Pirates of Silicon Because Silicon Valley, just Silicon Valley is the show, and it's great, and it's hilarious. Oh, right, right, Pirates right. of Silicon Valley is a true story. Yes, Steve with Noah Jobs, Wiley and everything. Yes. Steve Jobs, you know, bless his soul, rest in peace, was an asshole. No argument here. Treated his employees like shit stole pretty much everything from Steve Wozniak. And same thing goes for Bill Gates. Dude didn't give a shit about your life. He was ready to just fucking undercut you and just take the credit for everything. So look at that as an example and go, if I have a really good idea that I know is going to like work, trademark it, 
get an NDA and keep it on the download. Don't tell everyone about it because the second you do, someone's going to try and steal that idea. And then after that, you know, see most cities have a small business development center that'll offer, you know, free or affordable advice on how to move forward or, you know, feedback on your product or idea and doing that and getting that feedback and having people that you trust. And sometimes those people that you trust do have money they want to invest. That's going to be your backbone. Um, my teacher, my business teacher from school, Pete, like he, he was like the first out of like the company person to really know about the idea and the app in, you know, full disclosure. And he helped me go, all right, this is a good idea. How can I help you with this? You know, or like, let's do this instead of this is what I think. And, you know, maybe someday when you go public, I can invest or whatever, you know, it's one of those things where the school gave me the resources and they're genuinely interested and they're willing to help. So it's, it's all in kind of like who you trust with your idea, but you never know what those people might know or might have in store for you. When can we expect to see this app? Hope I, again, I need to find a mobile developer. Um, I should have like, um, like a video, like an animated reel that kind of goes, shows you what the app's going to look like, what it's going to do and stuff by quarter one of next year. Um, our website is under construction right now. I had to put it off because a, a spring semester just totally destroyed me. Um, so I'm going to actually be talking to my web designer next week and hopefully we should have a website up by the end of the summer. So you can at least kind of have something to, to see a general, you know, synopsis of what the app is going to do and what the company is about. Excellent. Something to look forward to. So you're very involved with making technology and games more accessible to people, whether it is by selling them at GameStop or by doing panels at PAX, which is how you and I got introduced. Yes. You and I both did panels about feminism at PAX East 2014, except whereas mine spun off into a podcast that you're now on, yours spun off into a series of panels that have continued every year at PAX East, with the third and most recent one occurring just two months ago. Yes. Tell me a little bit about what inspired you to do this panel and also what the panel is. So the panel, the first one was called Why It's Awesome Being a Female in the Games Industry. I was still with 2DX at the time. Ask Tatiana was about to release when I came up with the idea that I wanted to do a panel. And I was talking to my editor-in-chief, Jeffrey, who was like, look, like, like panels are awesome. Like, you get this high afterwards where you're just like, I spoke publicly and did good things today. Like, this is awesome. And I was like, all right, I want to do a panel. And he was like, well, what do you want it to be about? And I was like, it's mm, a good fucking question, Jeffrey. What do I want it to be about? He was like, well, I mean, make it about girls in the gaming industry why not and i was like okay he's like i'm gonna give you that much and you can kind of take the take the rest of the way and i was like all right so i'm sitting there and i'm like you know why not make it about why it's awesome being a female in the games industry because a lot of people you know focus on the negative oh you know i got treated this way and now instead of looking for a solution or looking for a support system i'm just gonna you know quit at everything or make a blog and post angry things about said experience for the next six years of my life. Like, no. So what we want, what I wanted to do was make a positive experience and talk about the positive and how to positively overcome these things and positively, you know, battle these, these things without, you know, casting a dark shadow over them. So I went on Twitter and I was like, yo, who wants to get up on stage with me and talk about being a woman and being awesome? People just flocked to me. They're like, all right, let's do this. So I got Susan, Diana, Maylene, Karen, and Sarah that first year. 
as nervous as I was, it was amazing. It was awesome. I had people coming up to me afterwards, like, thank you so much. Like I have hope, you know, for this. And, you know, now I actually have the confidence to go seek a career in the writing, you know, in games writing or whatever it may be. And I made a lot of friends that day at the panel. Um, and the second year, unfortunately, Susan could not be on the panel. So um, I actually had Jonathan Gibbs, who's been my producer. He's basically my little personal producer that I carry everywhere with me for anything that I need um, video wise and content wise. Um, and I was like, look, like, I know you are a half Asian, half black gay male, but would you be willing to moderate this panel in hopes to like make it more inclusive saying that you don't have to be a woman to fight this fight and to be positive about these issues. And he was like, done. My ass is going to Boston. Let's do this. Um, and then this year he did it with me again. And I said, look, like I want you, you know, you know, Mr. Broadway showtime, Jonathan Gibbs, like, I want you to take the show and make it yours. Like, I'm going to step back and I want you to, to handle the outline. I want you to, cause he's very aware of the social issues and everything that's going on. So I just let him like, go, look, here it is do what you want with it. And it ended up being really successful, or I like to think so. Um, and this year we got different people and it was just really interesting seeing it from like different angles and stuff. And even the second year, this guy came up to me and he was like, um, you know, you're the girl from that panel. I was like, yeah, you know, sure. What's up. And he was like, you know, it's like, I'm just really happy. And I was like, all right, well, cool. What you have about it? He's like, at, at first I didn't know how to help my girlfriend. You know, she was really, you know, unmotivated and unconfident with, you know, how she's going to get into this industry. And you guys not only gave her confidence and a path to follow and people to go to, but you helped me help her. And to hear that from a guy, from a straight white male going, yo, you guys helped me help her. And now I understand how to help like that. That meant something to me. And I was like, I got, I can't not do this. I cannot not do this. If like something this small is like causing that kind of effect to all these people of different genders, races and everything in between, like it's my duty. Now I feel that it is my duty, whether or not I talk the most or talk the least to have those four other people up there with me and Jonathan Gibbs, um, to, to show that it's not just about oppressing this and oppressing that it's about taking everything, seeing everyone as what they are, which is human and making the best of your journey into this industry that it's not, you can't, you know, let yourself get defeated, that there's more than that. There's more to this industry than rejection and oppression and anger and darkness. There's, it's what you make of it, but at the same time, you need to hear it from people that have seen that side and know that there are people that maybe, yeah, they're on that stage and you might think that they're, you know, stars in the industry that really are willing to help you and talk to you. And I think, again, it's my duty. I'm not going to stop doing it until Pax tells me I can't. Other than the lineup, how do you make the panel different every year? Different events happen every year. You know, there's just certain... Uh, articles get written that cause, you know, what's the term that I'm looking for? Just kind of like break the internet, you know, and there's different experiences that different people have. Sarah, uh, who sits next to me every year, she was with The Escapist. I think she still is with The Escapist. Um, you know, the first year she was really nervous and like she has anxiety like myself and she didn't really talk that much. But as each year went by, 
she had these new experiences in the gaming industry and she built up the self-confidence and was able to talk about it and to help other people with her experiences. So even if we've had like the same people a couple of years, every person has a different year. Every person has different experiences. So we take that and we, we really make something out of it. What have been some of the highlights during the panel? You mentioned some of the reactions you got after the panel. Has anything significant happened that really stood on your mind as, as like, wow, this is the reason I do this? The fact that it's a full room every time. The fact that that room fills up and people, for the, I, I want to say 95% of the people in that room are looking at the stage. They're not playing on their phones. They're not reading. They're not talking to someone else. They are genuinely interested in what we have to say and the fact that when we get off stage people want to talk to us after and thank us and say thank you for creating a safe environment and thank you for doing this that that's enough like for me to say wow because that means that we did something right and we're still doing something right and people still they need someone to look up to they need someone to tell them it's okay if you feel this way or hey you're not alone. And that's that's enough to say, wow. Why is it still really rad to be a female in the games industry? Because I think times are changing, you know, and as like feminism 2016, as this sounds, um, you know, more women are now starting to get in the gaming industry and building a support system. And there's two sides to it. You have women that definitely need each other. You know, I mean, like all girls go to the bathroom together kind of thing, you know. So we kind of have to have like our own safety net of, of women like, hey, girl, like, let me call you up. and like, what's going on? Like, I don't know what the hell's going on. Am I, am I, you know, crazy for feeling this way? But then you also have to have the support of men as well. You know, if, if we really want equality, if that's what we all say as people, we need to start treating each other equally. And as times have changed, different things have different meanings. So to, you know, be able to be in this day and age where I can do this panel with other people and we can help both the genders. I mean, it's not just one way. It's not just like men to women. It's also women to men. I mean, they're not everyone's perfect. So to be able to kind of like help people understand what equality really is and like how to handle certain issues and help each other understand each other so we can all mesh together and have a safe place, whether we're at home or at work is, is awesome. The fact that we're in a world and in an industry where people are open to that, I think makes it rad. Like the fact that I had more men come up to me after the panel and come to me for advice than women kind of said, so, I mean, there was a, of course still a lot of women that did as well, but that kind of said something like this year, especially there was a guy that came up to me and he has two daughters and he was, you know, like, Hey, you know, my daughters are made fun of in school for, you know, being geeky gamers and stuff. And I was like, look, like, as much as you want to beat these dudes up, all you got to do is keep being the awesome dad that you are because the fact that you're asking me this question proves to me that you are an amazing father to your children and just keep supporting, you know, the things that they like and don't punish them for it and don't bring up that stuff. Like, we all got bullied in school. It's going to happen. People are going to think what they want to think. But you showing your support for your daughters that way is going to show them that they don't have to stand, you know, to that kind of crap. They can go, this is what I like. And, you know, that's the end of the story. They'll build this self-confidence and maybe be a hero to like, you know, a girl a grade or two below them. So 
that that's why I think it's rad in you know short terms because we're in a time where we can help both sides you know kind of mesh together because they're open to it. Yeah, I would definitely say that although in some ways things have gotten worse, I mean there's uh, certainly certain debacles that have been going on over the last couple of years that are very uh, visible. On the other hand, that has also given us the opportunity to come together as a community and to identify these issues and address them in a way that is also very public. Absolutely. And it's one thing to like say, this is what we need to do and not have some sort of like tragic and dark event to back it up. But as terrible as the sound when something like that sounds terrible as it sounds, for something like that to happen for us to go public and go, look, this is this is why we need to do this and this is how we can do this in the best way carries a lot more weight. As time kind of goes by and as we continue doing this, it'll become easier to to help people understand and to hopefully correct those behaviors in a lot of people. Do you think this panel is something that you'll continue to do? Absolutely, 100%. I will, I will stop doing it. When PAX tells me no, and when PAX tells me no, I'll find some different outlet. Have you done it exclusively at PAX East? Yes. Yes, I have. But you live in California, right? I do. Why not go to PAX West? I went to PAX West once, and no offense to PAX West or the city of Seattle, PAX West had a different vibe for me. And I do have a lot of people in the industry that do feel this way. Um, Because I was like, am I crazy for like feeling this way? Like, am I the only one that thinks this? But there's something about PAX East specifically, the venue, the crowds, the way things are set up, where PAX East is truly about the people. And it's about the people that go, the community, and accepting one another, and awesomeness. Whereas PAX West, to me, had more of a trade show vibe. The way that it was laid out, the venue, just the overall, you know feel it just didn't feel as open and warm as pax east did so i chose to stick with pax east does that mean you don't go to pax west at all i don't um it also falls right in the beginning of the semester that's true which really sucks with like pax being towards the end of the semester for the most part you know my teachers are a lot more understanding going like okay you have this grade in this class or past the midway point all right, you can miss a couple of days of class. I'm not going to, you know, blink an eye. But when I'm like four weeks into the semester, not even, I think, because PAX West is at the end of August, isn't it? I think it's usually Labor Day weekend. That way they can extend the event into Monday. So that's literally like the second week of school for me, second or third week, depending. So like for that, you know, to leave for that weekend and stuff, it's been difficult, you know, more difficult. But people that I know, you know, and typically like go to these events with don't go to PAX West either. Um, but I kind of have to, to pick, you know, my battles. Like I can't do both. I got to pick one. And just, I think the impact that we have at PAX East is just really good and really positive. Um, you know, maybe when I'm out of school, I'll consider trying PAX West again, but there's just something about PAX East that just resonates in my soul. Like I can't, can't put my finger on it, but I'm not the only one that feels that way. I can't say that I'm responsible for that, but I certainly take a little bit of pride in it since Boston's my hometown. I love Boston. I love you people because you guys are just as angry as I am, so I just blend right in. <laughs> like people are like, oh, you must be from New York or Boston. I'm like, no, San Francisco. They're like, you're really angry. I'm like, I know. It's great. <laughs> you're angry? Oh, I'm such an angry person. <laughs> I'm just, I'm very, you know, that's the word that I choose, but 
the, the reality of it is, is I'm just really blunt and honest. I am a zero bullshit person. If you come to me for advice and you tell me I'm crying, that was mean. I don't like what you said. Well, you came to me for advice and I'm just going to tell you how it is because I, I was, I was sugarcoated a lot of my life as like a younger teen that made me very self-conscious about the way I handled things and kind of boosted my anxiety. And once I graduated high school and I realized I need to stop accepting sugarcoating and I need to stop passing it on. And if I really want to be confident in who I am, I better just speak my mind. So that's what I do. I speak my mind. I don't sugarcoat nothing. And people often see that as angry or bitchy. I'm just vocal and transparent in the way that I feel. And so, yeah, that's... But there's still something to be said for tact and diplomacy. Oh, I, was, I mean, there's, um, you know, there's being just a, like, a belligerent angry person. But then there's being, like, like a, I don't know, I guess a smart angry person who thinks about what they say and go, hey, like, this is real life logic here. Like... I'm telling you this because this is how life works. What you think is not how life works. And a lot of my friends, when they come to me for advice, it's because they know that they're going to get the 100% cold hard truth from me. And that's just the kind of person that I am. Because what I've observed is that there are some politicians who dismiss the value of empathy. And they disguise it by saying, they disguise it by calling it political correctness. No, God, no. It's, I, there, the, term political correctness is such a a gray area to me like who who said this was the correct term for this or who said this like who who is the boss of these rules that fall under this political correctness you know what i mean we're like sometimes it's like okay this is the wrong thing to say the quote-unquote pc thing to say would be this but instead of like trying to go by a rule book and this may or may not make sense, but just kind of like go to the, ask questions, go to the source and ask questions. Be like, yo, this is what the news says. This is what, you know, this book of political correctness is saying you or your affiliation with this is the source of the issue. What is really going on and how do I refer to this? What do I call this? What is the term for this? And that, I think the world just doesn't want to ask questions. I think a lot of society and the media have made us lazy and we don't want to ask those questions anymore. We just want to assume that someone else knows better than us and we should just go with what they say. Yeah, there is certainly a tendency towards speaking for other people instead of to them Mm -hmm. or with them. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you saw this recent interview that Sky News did with Owen Jones. I did not. Uh, so they were speaking to him about the massacre in Orlando. Okay. And at the time that you and I are recording this, that was just yesterday that that happened, that Correct. attack. And uh, Owen Jones is a gay individual, and they had him on the show. And for some reason, the news host kept trying to say that this was not an attack on LGBT individuals. This was an attack on humanity. This was a, an attack on people wanting to have fun, just like the nightclub in Paris. And Owen Jones was saying, no, this was a this was an action of hate. This was a hate crime. And the news host just would not give him that. That's ridiculous. Even though Owen Jones represents the community that was attacked. But yeah. They had him on the show and they would not let him speak for his demographic. Nah, that's that that's fucked up. That no. Hell to the fucking no. That's like 
you know, and that and this is this could be this is like a controversial um, example, but we in my English class we talked about social justice issues. It was a very interesting syllabus. Like all of our essays were social justice issues, and this the guy basically the way that you define racism in as opposed to um, prejudice is that to be racist. I'm actually going to look it up. Because the way it's phrased is weird. It's um, like a person has to be of like a superior position or like some sort of higher entity to be racist, quote unquote. And like otherwise it's like prejudice and it's like, no, like anyone can be racist kind of thing. And like, I don't, oh God, I wish I could like remember how to explain this better. But basically the argument was that white people couldn't be so the example we're going to rewind. Okay. So the controversial example was we were basically talking about um, that woman, Rachel, what's her, the girl that basically faked being black for X amount of years. And she was a woman who faked being black. And, you know, she worked for the North American, African American, you know. Yeah. The NAACP. Rachel Dolezal. Yes, Dolezal, thank you. And then there was, we were reading um, a book about stereotypes. It was a bunch of like small essays, and there was a guy in it, a man who was, I guess, a black man that was lighter skinned, but could pass as white and chose to do so because he was able to get a loan for his house. He was able to keep his job, get a good job, and support his family that way. And this girl in my class was like, well, what Rachel did was, you know, this is all about gender. You know, like if she was a man, you know, we wouldn't just like that guy, you know, in the book, uh, you know, he he wasn't ridiculed for his, you know, way. And I look at her and I'm like, listen, listen to yourself here. I'm like, it doesn't matter if he was a man or woman or if she is a man or a woman. What matters is, is you can't be a race that literally has privilege like the like check your white privilege lady like whites in america are so unbalancedly privileged to every other you know race out there that for you to identify with a race that has like been oppressed and you know treated poorly and inhumanely for hundreds of years and unfairly in the justice system today is totally fucking wrong because there is no way that that woman will ever understand, even in the slightest, no matter how much research that she does, what that's like. But for a man to be underprivileged and to have zero privilege and for survival be able to pass as that race that gets him the privilege of survival, that is two completely different situations. And I told her, I was like, if she was white, And she said, I want to help the black community. I think it was like in Seattle, you know, and I want to be a part of this organization. She probably could have carried more weight being a white voice in that organization and pushing for equality than she did faking being a black woman. Yeah, those who have privilege have the opportunity to use it to boost other voices. Exactly. And she could have done that. But now... She's like, nah, I'm, I'm transracial. I'm like, that's not a thing. Like you cannot, 
choose to be black. You cannot choose to go from a life and upbringing of privilege and just be like, nah, I I'm actually underprivileged and treated poorly. Like, no, that's not how that works. If, if people want to make a difference when it comes to equality, you need to take what you are now, whatever you identify as, whether if it's by your gender, your race, your, you know, sexual orientation, whatever that is, because there are, you know, bad people in every single group, you know, that exists and be that positive voice as that identity, no matter what you're speaking for. You know, if you are a white person that believes that, you know, we need to change something about gentrification in, you know, downtown San Francisco, don't try to put that on someone else. Don't try to pretend like you're not white. Be that white person that goes, hey, I see why this is wrong and I'm going to speak up about it because you're going to get other people that are in your more privileged group to go, hey, I get what you're saying. I'm going to speak up about this, too, because... Otherwise, you're just adding fuel to the fire because she did nothing like she just proved further that like no one knows how to quote unquote check their privilege and use it for good. Like it's like you could have done so much more for both, you know, sides of this to to push for positivity and push closer to equality. But instead, you just threw it out the window because you felt that you wanted to be a different race one day. Right. Rather than trying to speak to the demographic she was trying to help, she chose to speak for them. Correct. Hmm. Not good. Yeah. It's it. You know. It's if it's not your fight, if it's not your battle, don't try to speak for the people in that battle. Speak as a person outside of it who wants to help. Bring awareness to that and say, "This is how we can help." This is and talk to those people that need help and need support and see what can you do as an outsider for lack of better terms to help them and their cause versus assuming, you know, what's best. And that go, and there's so many different, you know, I was just using white and black just as like a, you know, a general thing, but it goes across so many different things, you know, all races, all genders, all sexual orientations, there is going to be crossfire everywhere no matter where you look. So don't assume that you know what's best for these people. You know, ask, talk to them and go, how can I help in the position that I'm in? And that's going to get people and society, I think, so much farther than it has. Good advice. So I want to bring this conversation full circle and finish where we started, which was talking about Xanax. Yay, Xanax. (laughs) But more specifically, social anxiety. I've had Susan Arndt on this show. She, of course, is the co-founder of Take This. And she has spoken on this show about anxiety in general and what it means to have clinical anxiety as opposed to the kind of anxiety that most people have at some point in their lives. But we didn't speak specifically about social anxiety, which is what I understand you experience. Yes, so I also experience general anxiety, which is basically... Anxiety about anything, anytime, anywhere, unexpected, here you go. But there's different aspects to anxiety, like social anxiety, for example, that can weigh heavier on certain things. Like for me, I do have general anxiety, but in the social anxiety aspect, that's larger than the other little things that I get anxiety about. So social anxiety is social situations that give you completely irrational anxiety. So, like, if I'm feeling, like, just mentally drained 
and someone's like, hey, man, let's go to the bar downtown. You know, it's Friday night. Everyone's going to be there. And then you just start crying. You're like, oh, God, I have to put clothes on. I have to like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get there? How much how long am I going to stay? You know, what if someone that I don't like is there? And like you just start asking yourself all these questions, all these irrational things that you put yourself in like the worst situation. You're like, all right, this is the worst situation possible. Let's think about it. Let's think about it like it's really going to happen. And you get, you know, an anxiety attack. And, you know, it kind of hinders your ability to function as a contributing member to society. And sometimes you just want to hide under your blanket and cry and nap it off. And, you know, sometimes you're, you have to be a part of these social situations and you have to also battle hiding it. So you're like, Oh God, does everyone know that I'm having an anxiety attack and everyone see this? Oh my God, is my lipstick? Okay. Like I haven't worn these jeans in a while. And it's all these thoughts that kind of correlate with the social aspect, like the people around you and like you thinking, are they going to think this of me? Or like, is this going to happen to where I embarrass myself in public? And of course it's different for every person. Every person has different social anxiety triggers. Um, Like for me, it can be like, depending on like who might be like going out to said social excursion. Like if I've had a bumpy pass with them, or if I've had like one awkward situation with them 10 years ago, my mind might start racing about that and make me feel and think that the me and whatever social trigger is involved, you know, can't have a good time because of it. When in reality, it is literally nothing. So like big crowds, again, like people that you might have not gotten along with in the past, or maybe an argument with someone, but they're over it and you don't think they are. And you're worried that they're not. It's, it's a bunch of stuff. So how does somebody with social anxiety decide that the best place for them is on stage at PAX East? Oh, man. Um, I I didn't really think about it until I got on stage the first time. I was like, oh, shit, like, this is scary. Once I came became open with my anxiety issues, um, I learned that a lot of people also had anxiety issues that I was not alone on, you know, that aspect. Um, and talking with Susan about a lot of my issues. I mean, she's probably one of my closest friends in this industry. And I'm so glad that we're friends because um, she's helped me through a lot of stuff. And she's kind of the one that helped me be like, hey, like, you need to hear advice that you're not going to like to hear, but you need to hear it. And that kind of helped me shape into the, you know, like person that I am where I'm like, hey, like, that really helps me and it can probably help someone else. But knowing that we all have, you know, the same general thing, social anxiety, and we all have the same general fear talking about it. And for whatever reason, I kicked myself in the ass and went, if I don't talk about it, nobody else will. So that was kind of my motivation for going up on stage and going public with it and public speaking. And that's been a good experience. It has. I, um, the first year, like I was really shaky. If you watch the video, I'm like, Oh my God, like I'm freaking out. But this year, you know, really having that self-talk, you know, and going like, Hey, like you're doing this again and you're telling these people how to fight this fight. But if you take your medication to hide that, you're probably not going to be, you know, truthful and heartful about it. And that's really what kind of helped me overcome that fear of public speaking about something that's been an important issue for most of my life. But does taking medication really hide it or does it just help you handle it? It depends on the dosage, I feel. Like, again, so to be specific here, a half a milligram is like usually what a pill comes in for me. Half a milligram is enough to basically 
make me kind of like it, it can put me into like a nice long nap, but it can also just kind of shut everything off. Um, and I can just be like, all right, I'm a drone now. Like nothing matters. I'm chill with everything, whatever. Um, but half of that, which is a quarter milligram, which is what I take if I need to function, that's enough to basically keep me as I like am as a person and shut everything up in my head. Like I stop rambling in my mind and coming up with these, you know, things. And sometimes depending on the day, I mean, it can make me a little, little tired and a little like unwilling to speak my mind. It kind of depends. It depends on the dosage. It depends on the severity of the anxiety as well. Like I, uh, if I'm really, really anxious, like if I'm in like a hospital or something, they'll give me a full milligram and they'll just knock me out and they'll be like, here you go. Goodbye. You're done. <laughs> like you are freaking out too much. I'm, I'm not good with doctors and hospitals personally. So they usually try to calm me down, which ends up just making me fall asleep. When you said that half a milligram makes you into a drone, that is a fear that some friends of mine have had that led them to not even seek out medication in the first place. You... So here's the thing with, with me, at least, like I said, I've had depression, anxiety, and ADHD all my life. What I learned, uh, my car insurance agent, actually, who's a very good friend of mine, he has ADHD, and we have that same thought process. And he's the one that was like, look, I'm not a doctor, but I went to Ikea with you, and I think you have ADHD. Which, if you're going to tell if someone has ADHD, Ikea is the place. And I was like, you know what, maybe you're right. So I went to my doctor, and I talked to him, and I was like, look, I tried antidepressants. They made everything worse. Xanax is only good, you know, if I'm going to go to bed or I can take a little bit to kind of shut things up, but it's not a good permanent solution. I think I have ADHD. He's like, all right, okay. Like what makes you think that? So I tell him and he goes, all right, like you probably definitely have it. They is he issued me like a paper, like exam. I mean, he went, okay, you have ADHD and I'm on what's called Concerta, which is a slow release Ritalin, um, which is different from Adderall and chemical makeup. Um, in my experience, I find Ritalin to be, quote, like, less tweaky. Like, you're not as like, oh, my God, I got to I gotta do everything. I feel like I'm on drugs. Oh, my God. It's more like it shuts everything up and it makes me concentrate on one thing. Um, the Concerta has almost eliminated my depression entirely um, and has lowered my anxiety significantly. So I take it in the morning. I wake up at, like, you know, 6 o'clock, 6.30, usually when I have school. I take it in half an hour, like, I'm good to go. And it doesn't change me as a person. It doesn't make me a drone. It doesn't make me feel like I'm on crack or anything. Like it just helps me focus on one thing and it helps me think rationally because the ADHD can actually fuel depression and fuel anxiety and create those things. Um, and for years we try to tackle them independently and going, okay, like it's the depression, it's depression, it's the anxiety, it's the anxiety. When in fact it was actually just my ADHD and my inability to concentrate on one thing and the inability to concentrate um, and I'm sure even if you haven't had ADHD, you've experienced it at least once. It's frustrating and it's, it just makes you really angry and it just makes you an evil person. Cause you're like, shit, I can't fucking finish anything. I can't concentrate. And then you start to think less of yourself because of it. And then you don't get things done and then you get depressed. And like I said, everyone's probably experienced that once. Imagine that by the tenfold every single day of your life about everything like you're going to clean your house and you're like all right i'm gonna take out the trash from my bedroom and then you leave it in the kitchen you're like man i need to unload the dishwasher and then you halfway unload that and you remember oh shit i didn't check the mail yesterday so at the dishwasher half unload it and open you go out to the mail and you're like fuck i have math homework so then you go back and you have math homework 
And you're like, man, did I ever like finish like unloading the dishwasher? So you go back to the dishwasher. It's like, shit, this trash is still here, but I didn't empty the litter box. And you go empty the litter box. You're like, oh man, this new game that I pre-ordered on Steam is finally I'm gonna play it for five hours. You're like, oh shit, I need to take out the trash. It's it's literally just like that. Like everything is at a thousand miles per hour. You can't get anything done. And it just at the end of the day, when the sun sets and you look at all the things that you were supposed to do, whether it's cleaning, housework, writing you know, going on a date, you know, spending time with a loved one, whatever it is, when you see that you had no ability to control finishing one thing at a time and getting those things done, it creates more stress because now you have twice as much stuff to do for tomorrow and you don't know if tomorrow you'll be able to actually finish them, if this is going to happen again, which again, create created for me the depression and the anxiety Um, And so this medication has actually helped me a lot in improving my life and going back to school. Now, does medication work for everyone? No. However, I wouldn't stop after having a bad experience once. It took me one, two, three, four different medications on like long-term trials, basically, to find the right one that didn't make me gain a bunch of weight, which is a big thing with antidepressants which didn't change me as a person and which actually helped me. So if you are out there and you're trying medication for the first or second time and it's still not working, don't give up. Like just keep trying. And if you don't have a doctor that you genuinely like seeing and are comfortable talking with and genuinely likes talking to you and helping you solve your issues you need to find a new doctor. It does not matter. Like find someone else. Like I spent so much of my life with shitty doctors who didn't care. And now I actually have one that I get excited to see and give updates and he works with me. And it's, it's amazing. It, the difference it makes when you have a doctor that listens to you and wants to work with you makes the biggest difference. Um, you know, cause he was like, all right, you know, you tried SSRI antidepressants do you want to try another one? I told him, no, it was like, it made everything worse. And he listened, he went, okay, these are the alternatives that we have. And if there was an alternative, he would tell me we need to either try something else or we need to tackle some other aspect. So having that right doctor, not giving up and really asking the right questions about finding that right medication for you is important. But again, you know, sometimes medication isn't for someone and there might be some other alternative to medication that you don't know about that actually will help you. Can you give us any ideas about what those alternatives might be? I having a good chiropractor is really important. I feel now that I have one, the way that he adjusts me and he explains how everything is connected just like really helps me. And like the way that he's able to identify all the different issues in my body. Cause it's not just about cracking your spine, and your neck. The guy adjusts my knee, my hip, you know, my feet, and all those little nerves are all connected to your brain. And when those things are all in place and right, you are actually, like, it changes you as a person. Like, I didn't know my hip slipped out of place, like, just by millimeters. That's all it takes. And the other day, he knocked that thing back into place. I mean, it hurt when he put it back in there. But when he got it aligned, I felt like a new person. I was like, I, everything's fine. My body, my body lines up. All my muscles are the way that they're supposed to be. They're relaxed. I'm not tense. I can go on with my day. Or, I mean, maybe it might just be therapy, you know? But again, there's different types of therapy. There's music therapy. There's art therapy. There's sandbox therapy, which is popular with kids. But I do think for adults, it could probably help too. Or even support groups. Finding people 
that struggle with the same things, being able to talk to them helps too, because then you remind yourself that you're not alone. And there might be something that, you know, this other person in this group does that helps them that could actually help you. Um, like something that I do for my insomnia, sometimes if it's not too hot and it's not too bad, like I'll drink a non, a decaffeinated herbal tea. And my friend Eric taught me that trick years ago. He goes just like sit in bed and have like a nice warm decaf herbal tea. And just like those natural herbs, just like soothe the body and you fall right asleep. And as hippie-ish and Berkeley as this sounds, the earth gives us all these resources. Like I take four different vitamin supplements a day just because I know that they help my body feel clean and they help me feel better and they help with the other health issues. So like even just a good multivitamin and walking 30 minutes a day can do wonders to, you know, the body both physically and mentally. I mean, there's all these things that we don't think matter, but they do the things that you feed yourself, you know, the way that you sleep at night, you know, if your, you know, back is adjusted correctly, you know, all those little things, they matter. You know, it's just that we, we try not to think like, oh, these physical aspects don't contribute to my mental, you know, health. Ah, shit doesn't matter. I can just eat junk food all day and never take a vitamin in my life. Now that I eat cleaner and I take vitamins every day, I actually feel better and I'm more motivated to get up in the morning and get stuff done. So it's all, there's, there's a lot of stuff in the world that we can do. There's, there's never not a solution for someone. There's always something out there, whether it be something holistic or a medication, there's something for everyone. One distinction I've recently become aware of is the difference between getting help or getting therapy and being engaged with your therapy. You know, there are some individuals who seem to just be going through the motions. They go see their therapist every week because they know they have to. But then there are people who do that but are also interested in taking action on what they learn in those therapy sessions and actually getting better. That's that's all about you and the way that you click with your therapist. If you're going every week just because you know you need to go, you're not with the right therapist. Just like the doctor. If you actually enjoy your time with your therapist, regardless of how tough that those talks may be, and some will be better than others, and you feel motivated to take action on the things that you discussed, that means you're with the right therapist. It's And you can't blame yourself for that. You got to go, okay, you know, it's just like a relationship. You know, not everyone can date everyone. Everyone's got, you know, their match. And it's the same thing with doctors and therapists. And that does matter. So just like with medicine, it's important to find the one that works for you. Absolutely. Everyone's body is different. Well, it's very encouraging to know that there is hope out there. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so we've covered so many topics. It was I don't know how this could be, but is there anything I missed? Um, I don't think so. I mean, maybe, possibly. <laughs> I'm a woman of many hats. I've worn many hats, played many roles. Um, but I think we pretty much covered the majority of it. I think we got it. Well, you contain multitudes. And if it happens to be that we overlooked one, you're always welcome to come back on the show. I, you know what? If you want me back on the show, whenever you just give me a call. Wonderful. And maybe we can repurpose the audio from one of your future PAX East panels as an episode as well. Absolutely. And I apologize to everyone out there. For the audio for this year's panel, I know it wasn't the greatest. Next year, we will definitely improve on that. And again, I apologize. And provide a transcript, hopefully. Hopefully have someone that can transcribe it for us. Yes. We'll provide a link to the video of your panel in the show notes, which again can be found at polygamer.net. And for those who are looking to find you online, where should they go? Um, I live on Twitter. 
Uh, Twitter is my jam. So you can go at, at digital underscore vixen with a three. So D-I-G-I-T-A-L underscore underscore V-I-X-3-N, which I'm sure you can provide. Yes. And where does that name come from? Um, it's when I may, when I got into the industry, I already had like a personal tour that was like protected with my friends. And I was like, yeah, I want to make some like a game journalism Twitter, like something for like the face that I have out there when I'm writing. And I was like, I want it to be like digital something. And I don't know. Vixen was like one of the words that came up. I have no idea why, but I mean, foxes are cool. So, I mean, Vixen works. And spelling it with a three is just very elite. Oh yes, I had to. I had to have some some elite in there. <laughs> had to make it super super nerdy. And I was like, yeah, I'll put a three in here. Why not? That's where that came from. It was just one of those. I had a bunch of different words, and I was like, I like Vixen. I like foxes. Foxes <laughs> are cool. No, I mean the Marvel character. I'm sorry, the DC character uh, Vixen is also a really cool character as well, who I hope to see in uh, more of in the TV show because I thought they did a really good job with her. But I thought she was really cool. Which TV show? Um, she was in, uh, was it Flash? Yeah, it was, oh, okay. she, was, she showed up in Flash and I think maybe Green Arrow. I can't remember, but they did like a actual American, uh, American animated series. I'm like reading it off of Google. I'm like, what else was she in? Um, the animated series with her too. It was like a little mini series, um, gotcha. which was pretty cool. But I think she's one of those DC characters that like, we don't pay attention to. And we should like Black Panther and Marvel. Like years ago, people would have been like, who's Black Panther? And now it's like, oh, Black Panther's the coolest Marvel character ever. So, like, I hope to see, like, I think Vixen's really cool. Because she has, like, this amulet that she uses. And she, like, takes, like, the the spirits and, like, the powers of, like, different animals and uses them with magic. And it's really cool. And she's kind of a badass. So I hope to see more of her. But there's, I mean, there's so many, you know, good comic book characters out there that we don't actually use, like, or pay attention to. So... There's a lot of different cool things to the word Vixen, I guess. Have you played the Steam game Epistory? I have not. It is a game set in a fantastic origami world, and you play a three-tailed fox. Whoa, that sounds cool. It's gorgeous. It's called Epistory? E-P-I story, all one word. I'm literally writing that down right now. Epistory. I recommend it. I'm going to check that out. Cool. Awesome. All right, Tatiana, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ken, for having me on the show. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. I want you to scratch everything I just said. (laughs) My ADHD medication wore off. No. Um, Okay. So, yeah. So, everything. Okay.